I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Catherine Johnson. So now, Catherine, uh, you're a planetary scientist. Um, What is a planetary scientist to you? That's a great question. So planetary scientists can uh, look at lots of different things. So in general, to me, a planetary scientist is someone who uh, looks at, thinks about, researches planets or moons or asteroids or actually even comets, bodies mostly in our own solar system and really wants to understand how they have evolved over time. So what's their story? What's their history? Um, And to do that through a variety of different ways. So, you know, individual planetary scientists can look at different parts of that problem. They can look at the surface. They might really be trained in geology. They might be trained in atmospheric science. They might be trained in... uh, looking at the interiors of planets, so really kind of from a geophysical perspective. Um, And then it overlaps a little bit with astronomy in the context of understanding how do planets and moons and asteroids uh, spin on their own axes and how do they orbit the sun. And so understanding that aspect of planets is important actually also for understanding their their evolution. Um, so it's a mix of different things and individual people have different uh, different focuses uh, within that. And which focus do you adhere to? So my background is actually geophysics. So I uh, studied geophysics, so quantitatively understanding the Earth's interior. Um, and, uh, and my PhD was in geophysics. Actually, I have an undergraduate degree in geophysics as well, which is, um, outside of Canada and maybe the UK is not really that, uh, typical. Um, and so I have an undergrad in geophysics and then my PhD was in geophysics and was actually split between studies of the earth and studies of Venus. And in fact, they were entirely unrelated. I just started on two different projects and they were, uh, grouped together in the title of my thesis using the word and. <laughs> so, um, but I worked on the earth because uh, one of the things that I, I like to do is be outside. So, um, so I wanted to include some terrestrial geophysics. Amazing. Uh, how long have you been doing this? So let's see, I got my PhD uh, 25 years or so ago now. So it's been a, it's been a little while. Um, I actually got my uh, PhD and then did a postdoc for a couple of years in geophysics. And then actually I, I stepped away from research for a few years. I started and ran an education and outreach program, one of the first kind of big education and outreach programs for a consortium of universities. So the IRIS consortium, Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology. So it's a consortium of universities, mostly in North America, but also overseas and um, uh, dedicated to collecting data about earthquakes to learn about the interior of the earth. And so I started their education and outreach program and ran it. Uh, That was based in Washington, 
DC. And so I did that for three or four years. Um, but I, I kind of missed doing research and I found myself going into the lab to do a bit of research at the weekends. And I thought maybe I should do this during the week too. So I actually started applying for a faculty position. So I've been at UBC since 2006. Well, we're glad you're here. Why did you go into geophysics? Did you always want to be a geophysicist? Yes and no. Um, not consciously, I guess, for a long time. Um, when I was a kid, I loved, so I loved, I really liked math in school. Um, I quite liked physics, but I had a terrible physics teacher, uh, so I wasn't very confident about it. I liked it, but I wasn't confident about it. So I wanted to do something that would use physics, but I went to an all-girls school, actually, in the UK. I grew up in the UK, and uh, doing science was really not encouraged, particularly. We were all expected to do nice girl subjects, like maybe if we were going to go into academia, do something like classics, you know, Latin and ancient Greek would be appropriate. Um, and uh, for, fortunately, I had a great math teacher who really sort of just said, do what you want to do. And, and my mother also, um, although she was not a scientist, uh, was very supportive of me doing science. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do something with science, but I didn't know what. I really didn't know what, I couldn't figure out what it would be. I loved geography, I loved physical geography. And then um, I was completely addicted to everything about the space shuttle program, you know. And then I would read in the back of the newspaper, because of course it was in print in those days. I would read in the back of the newspaper all these amazing things that the Voyager spacecraft were discovering in the solar system. And I thought, oh, that would be really cool, but I have no idea how I would end up doing that. Um, and so then I went to I, I went to a careers counselor and uh, and actually took a, a little test, you know, to see what careers would align with my interests. And uh, at the end of this test, a little printout came out and it said, uh, there are no careers to which you are suiting. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe some of the following might be OK. And, uh, and so, you know, obviously their very primitive little matching algorithm at that, at that point didn't work so well, but it basically suggested anything that sort of used physics but had applications. And so, in fact, I actually looked at um, things like physics of music, geophysics, uh, biophysics, medical physics also, um, and somehow ended up in, in geophysics. I think it was really the physical geography part um, and so I ended up doing that for my undergrad, which was in the UK. And then as part of that, I actually did a year abroad, which was not very typical um, at the time for schools in the UK, because the funding model was so different for going to college compared with North America. Um, but my university had an exchange program with the University of Pennsylvania. So I went there for a year. And when I went there for a year, I knew that I wanted to come to North America to do a PhD. And so that was sort of how I started on the North American track and really in geophysics, I guess. And how did you make the leap from geophysics to um, planetary sciences? I always find it so um, amazing that, it, you know, geologist works with NASA. Yeah. So, you know, I started in, in geophysics, as I, as I said, but one of the reasons that I went to grad school where I did, um, there were a couple of reasons. One was actually... There was a specific person that had been recommended to me to work with um, by somebody I knew in undergrad. Um, and so, of course, you know, all these things in life where we make decisions and they're kind of these 
little things really can change our course, right? And so, so I looked up this person and he was uh, applying to be part of the, to be a scientist on the Magellan mission to Venus, which was a NASA spacecraft that actually orbited Venus in the late 1980s, early 1990s, so 1989 to 1994. Um, and, uh, and so he had written a proposal to be part of this mission. And I went to talk to him and I said, oh, you know, I'd really like to work with you. And he said, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to get funded to do this. And so I was already working on a different project in looking at the Earth's magnetic field with uh, paleomagnetic data, so records of magnetized rocks <laughs> and um and and so i started on this project and then about a year later uh, uh dr samuel said oh you know i i got funded are you still interested and i said yes definitely and so this is how i ended up with this um completely split thesis because i didn't want to stop doing what i'd already done because i was quite far along with it um but i really wanted to work on on you know this magellan mission and in the end, it actually ended up being a really good thing because sort of having a foot in the Earth world and other worlds is really great, both for the science, because, of course, our understanding of the Earth is so rich compared with our understanding of other planets. So you you have all these tools and techniques and you're um, you're working in a very advanced way in terms of you know, progressing understanding. Um, and then you can take that to thinking about other planets. And so that was very good. And then also just from a pragmatic side, right? Planetary science is um, great when things are going well. And, you know, if things aren't going well, if you lose a couple of missions or, you know, funding can get very tight. Um, and so it actually, you know, sort of gives you the ability to be able to keep a program that's funded from different sources. So it was kind of a, it was by accident, but in the end um, has worked out really well and been really super fun. <laughs> and interesting too, I'm always amazed by uh, the project that you're coming out with. Uh, speaking of which, I'm curious, um, would you care to share any of your discoveries that you've made? Oh gosh, uh, let's see, uh, discoveries that well, so working on planetary missions, um, first of all, you know, discoveries are really discoveries of a team of people, right? Always, you know, by definition, it, you know, it takes so many years and so many people to put a spacecraft on or in orbit around or flying, even just flying by um, a planetary body. Um, so, and so the data that you get are kind of this result of many, many uh, people working for a long time. I think, um, you know, for me, some of the stuff that I've been really excited about over the last few years has been, uh, I mean, most recently the InSight mission to Mars, but before that, the Messenger mission to Mercury. So Messenger was the first spacecraft ever to orbit the planet Mercury, which is the closest planet to the sun, of course. And so this was a NASA mission. And prior to that mission, we had only ever seen one side of Mercury by spacecraft that flew by it, one spacecraft that flew by Mercury three times in the 1970s. And so the messenger mission for the first time, you know, in 2008, actually at the time of the first flyby of messenger, this was the first time we even saw the other half of a planet in, the, in a solar system, right? So the, you know, this was very exciting. But for me, the part that of the mission that I was really working on was trying to understand um, Mercury's magnetic field, so it's the only planet other than the Earth that has a 
in the inner solar system that has a present day global magnetic field. And uh, it's quite similar to the Earth in terms of its geometry, but about a hundred times weaker than that of the Earth. And we didn't know from, from the Mariner 10 missions in the 1970s, we knew that Mercury had this field, but we weren't quite sure, was it a global field? Why was it so weak? How was it produced? Can Is it strong enough to hold off the solar wind from the surface of the planet? Um, does Merc Did Mercury used to have a magnetic field in its past? You know, does it have magnetized rocks on the surface? And so a lot of my work has been uh, looking at that with, you know, a group of other people who are involved in the mission. And so I think, you know, the things that I'm excited about after, you know, from that is really how a group of us were really able to really change the paradigm of like what we know about a planet, you know, really see your evolution of understanding move forward so quickly that in a few years you have a totally different understanding of of the planet, you know, because you've got this sort of richness of data. So for me, that was really exciting. Um, and to be able to really identify this global field, to be able to see that when the solar wind pressure is higher on the planet of Mercury compared with when it's lower, it actually compresses this planetary magnetic field. It compresses it and then the field expands and compresses it and expands. And this compression and expansion of the uh, of the what we call the planet's magnetosphere, right? The region in which the global field is confined. This compression and expansion actually in turn generates electric currents in the deep interior of the planet that act to resist that change. And so we were actually able to measure how big Mercury's iron core is by looking at these tiny changes in the magnetic field. Like how does it resist the solar wind essentially? Because that's a very sensitive indicator of the core size. Um, so that, you know, sort of taking your understanding from, yes, Mercury has a field, but it's really weak and we don't know what it is to, yes, it's definitely a global field. It's this weak and it interacts with the solar wind in these ways. And then the last thing was the discovery of of crustal magnetization. And this was really exciting and was work that was led, actually led by me. It was uh, a discovery that we made at the very end of the messenger mission when the spacecraft's orbit got so close to the planet that it could detect these very weak signals from magnetized rocks. And actually figuring out that these were present was really difficult. You know, their signal is, is kind of one part in a hundred of the strength of the global field, which is already very weak, right? So they're very small signals. They're really masked by a lot of other things, a solar wind signal, um, lots of other stuff. And so uh, for a long time, we, we didn't see them um, in part because we were too far from the planet or the spacecraft was too far from the planet. And then even when the spacecraft got close to the planet for a while, we didn't see these signals because we didn't know how to look for them, <laughs> right? And then you figure out how to actually remove everything else. And I remember sitting at home one evening after I'd, I'd seen these signals and I, knew, I was the person who was working on this. And I realized that until I told somebody about them, that I was the only person in the whole world who actually knew this, right? And it's like, that was a really, I think that for me, it was a tiny moment of selfishness, right? 
where it's like, I want to keep the secret for myself just for another few hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's sort of, you know, that, that's, that's a rare, and also recognizing that such moments are really rare moments. Mostly what we're doing is actually, you know, moving science forward by making incremental uh, discoveries that really build on each other and build this body of work. So, so for me, that was a really cool mission because it sort of encompassed all these different parts of doing science, you know, the, the long haul of doing research and then, but the excitement of actually finding things and, the, and then the surprises of like, hey, I thought it was going to look like this and it really doesn't. Why? So that, that was really, really fun. Must be an extra um, inspiring and rewarding to see a project through from beginning to end like that. Yes, and I mean, I wasn't even involved from the very beginning, right? So the, this mission was, I came on as what's called a participating scientist. And so these are uh, programs where people who are not involved in the mission can propose to be involved, usually after the mission is launched, but before it gets to wherever it's going. And the idea behind the program is to bring in sort of new expertise that maybe wasn't there at the time that the mission was originally thought up, right? So, you know, this mission had been proposed and in the works for well over a decade before I was part of the mission, right? And missions to the outer solar system are in the works for decades often before they get to their target. Um, and so these programs are very good because they're a way to bring in new expertise, um, new knowledge, right? That wasn't around at the time. Um, the mission was put together, and then younger people, right? And of course, in today's world too, to try to diversify teams, um, uh, because our you know our field is traditionally mostly white men, and so uh, so this is a very important program. But yes, you know, a lot of the people have been involved in this mission for a lot longer than me, right? And so for them especially, um, it's a it's a huge thing to see something come to fruition. So I'm curious, does, does this mean that Mercury has a mantle? Yes, it does. Mercury, so the planet is a silicate planet. So it's a rocky, what we call a, a metallic rocky planet. But uh, the thing that's really different about it compared with uh, the other inner solar system planets is for the other inner solar system planets, the metallic core at the center of the planet is basically iron, nickel, metal with a little bit of lighter elements like oxygen, sulfur in them. So the metallic core is about half the size of the planet. So half the radius, the radius of the core is about half the radius of the planet. And for Mercury, the radius of Mercury's core is about 80% the radius of the planet. So the planet, um, the planet is 2,400 kilometers in radius, 2,000 of that is the core. So the mantle and crust, the rocky part of the planet, is basically a 400 kilometer thick. So it's a very thin layer sitting on this, essentially a bull bearing, right? <laughs> um, and so it's really interesting from a sort of geology perspective and thinking about, you know, the history of volcanism and tectonism on that planet, because this is not happening in a really deep, thick mantle, right? You know, this is a mantle and crust that together are only 20% of the planet by radius. Um, so it's very different in terms of its history. And a big mystery that we still don't really know the answer to is actually how Mercury came to be that way. Did it form that way or was it, you know, was it changed during its earliest evolution? 
That's really cool. Mm -hmm. And you're working on Mercury right now, right? Yeah, so I'm still working with some of the data that we collected. Um, you know, there's lots to do for many years, right? And there's a lot of interest in, um, in continuing to work on Mercury. Actually, in preparation, I'm not involved in this mission, but there's a European mission called BepiColombo. And it's on its way to Mercury right now. It launched a couple of years ago. And uh, it is actually taking two spacecraft to Mercury. Both of them will orbit, but at different altitudes above the surface. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier, right, about the solar wind, which is this sort of wind of, of uh, uh, plasma, so charged particles that comes from the sun, um, it interacts with the planet and the planet's magnetic field in, in actually quite complicated ways and ways that are very different from any other planet. And this BepiColombo mission, one of the things that it will do is really be able to understand that interaction because one of the spacecraft will spend time in the solar wind and the other one will be close to the planet. And so they'll be able to, at the same time, be able to see what's happening in the solar wind and what is the response of the planet to um, to the solar wind. So, uh, so there's a lot of interest right now in the international community of planetary scientists that are working on Mercury to try to get as much out of existing data sets, whether it's from MESSENGER or, or actually Earth-based astronomical observations or uh, laboratory measurements of, you know, the kinds of minerals that we might expect in the rocks on Mercury, um, the kinds of conditions that we might expect in Mercury's core. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in all of these different areas of science related to understanding Mercury in preparation for this, uh, the arrival of BepiColombo. So it's actually really neat because it's going to be sort of another, you know, quantum step forward, right, in our understanding of the planet, really relatively quite soon after MESSENGER, you know, at least not 30 years later, 10 years later. <laughs> Working in space, you don't really have a, a field to go out into, but um. I found that when I talk to scientists, some of the best stories they have are their field stories or um, stories of things that happen in the workplace that don't necessarily have to deal, deal with the work. Uh, do you have any fun side stories you'd like to share? Uh, sure. So let's see. So in planetary science, you don't, as you said, you know, you don't get to go to your actual field area. <laughs> but um, you know, what a lot of planet, I don't do an awful lot of this, but what a lot of planetary scientists or some planetary scientists do is to actually do uh, field work on the Earth, right, as an analog for planetary environments or to better understand them, um, or just to understand, you know, volcanism on the Earth, right, as being a comparative point for volcanism on other planets, for example. So um, one of the things that I I have done that was really fun was we actually had a uh, a planetary science field school um, that was to, it was to Hawaii, it was to look at volcanism on Hawaii um, and to understand uh, how things look in the field. You know, if you go in the field and you actually, you know, look at some of the volcanoes and some of the flows, some of the structures that you see, the processes that are happening, when you're on the ground, what does it look like? And then the purpose of this planetary, of this summer school was to, um, to be able to compare those observations and understand them in the context of what if we only had remote sensing data for Hawaii? What if we just looked at Hawaii 
with satellite-based observations, right? You know, what would we infer if we didn't know what was on the surface? And how can we sort of, how can we use that to guide our understanding and in, in looking at other planets? And um, so that was actually a very, very uh, valuable trip. I've been in the field for field work for uh, paleomagnetism. So collecting rock samples to bring them back to measure their magnetization in the lab to understand the behavior of the Earth's magnetic field back in time several million years ago. Um, and, uh, and so those are, um, those are fun field trips. They involve uh, drilling cores. So you take basically a chainsaw <laughs> and then you convert the part that would normally have the chainsaw part of it on into a, a drill bit. Um, and then you go and drill rock samples in the field to bring them back. And we did some work on this um, in the in the Azores. And whenever you do this kind of work in really wet, heavily vegetated areas, right? You know, the idea of an outcrop becomes a different thing, right? It's covered in moss and, you know, you can't find it on your GPS because it's down a dirt road that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> All of these kinds of things. But I think, you know, the main part of fieldwork, right, is people and adventures. And so, um, and in planetary science, probably the closest we come is actually sort of our team meetings where we get together as a team to discuss our results, to look at things, to really try to understand stuff together. And it's, you know, it's that working together as a group of people, right, which is always good and always stressful, right? You know, going in the field is stressful, usually mostly because of people, <laughs> you know, but, but it's really fun and rewarding, mostly because of people. Um, and so that's sort of our closest thing, I think, in, in planetary science. And you, you've attended a few launches, right? A couple, yes. Um, so I, I attend. I didn't attend the messenger launch because I wasn't actually part of the um, science team at that point. I attended the Osiris Rex uh, launch. So Minar Al Assad talked to you about Osiris Rex, right? Um, and so we, my group, um, working on the Osiris Rex mission, uh, myself, Minar. And Lydia Philpot, who used to be in my group, um, all went to uh, down to Florida for the Osiris Rex launch, which was amazing. Um, and then uh, I took actually all of my group to, including people who weren't working on the mission, to the Insight launch, which was from Vandenberg on the West Coast uh, in 2018. And I'd like to say that was an amazing view, but the launch was at night. Um, the launch was actually at 4 a.m., which would have been spectacular, right? But anybody who's spent time in coastal California knows that it spends a lot of time in the fog. <laughs> 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 so we got up at, I think, like midnight or something to go to the bus, to go to the launch. You know, they have a very involved procedure for this because NASA's done this many times, right? And uh, we saw... Um, we saw an amazing launch on the big screens that were set up on the cliff, <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't see it ourselves. <laughs> then again, you know, that's a great example, right? It was about the, you know, being there with the group of people who are just so excited about this. Um, so it was really, that was really, really good. But if you ever have the chance to go to a launch, they're incredible. <laughs> it's on my bucket list. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, your work sounds fascinating. Um, but why would you say it's important? Or what are the, the real world uh, implications of your research? Yeah, so I get this question a lot, right? Um, and, uh, you know, for me, what's important is just pushing the boundaries of understanding. I mean, I think, you know, I think this is a very important thing. It's it's something that humankind will do no matter what. <laughs> um, and so I think doing that is important. And, um, you know, advancing understanding is important, but it's really important to talk to people about it, right? And why it is, what's exciting about it, what we have learned. Does anything that I've done affect my daily life? Sure it does, because I love it, <laughs> you know, and I'm lucky enough to have a job doing it. But from a practical perspective, does it? No. But the other thing about uh planetary research and and really anything that involves in fact developing instrumentation to do things right to measure things is you don't know what it is that is going to be the next application of something that has had to be designed maybe you didn't design it but that's had to be designed to make the measurements that you or another group of people think are important measurements to make right and there's so many of course there's classic examples like duct tape and things like that that have come out of the have come out of you know space-based research and exploration. Research relative to many other things is not a high cost item, right? You know, it's it's uh, it's less expensive than funding the military, <laughs> and and so you know it's a it it's something that we should just always invest in, right? And so, um, so for me, it's really like pushing that boundary of understanding, and. I think in terms of the people that I work with, like students, people in my group who come and work with me, another really important aspect of it is that if you do that for a while in your life, because you're really at the edge of something, right? It's very uncomfortable. I mean, doing research is not a comfortable endeavor in the terms of maybe confidence or thinking about something or you know, because you're always at the limit of your understanding or almost always at the limit or should be at the limit of your understanding. Um, and so on a personal level, I think spending some time doing that um, and learning how to do it and how to cope with the discomfort of being on the edge of something is actually a really invaluable skill and experience to have had because you know the confidence that can come with it is actually measurable and and doesn't um and it doesn't matter what else you go on to do so so you know i think experiencing that you don't have to necessarily do it for the rest of your life or even beyond a a graduate degree um but uh doing it for you know a, a long enough internship um, to be able to just develop that confidence, I think, is actually really a, a very, very valuable skill. Sometimes you don't know a discovery is worth making until it's been made. Right. <laughs> or how important it's going to be until it happens. Now, um, again, your research, your work sounds just fascinating. Um, you've listed off a whole bunch of really exciting things. But what would you say is the uh, favorite part of your job for you? The number one best part of your job? Okay, so the selfish part is 
is just getting to geek out and do my own research, right? Geek out, sit down for me. It's like working with data, writing code to analyze data, looking, you know, looking at things to understand what they mean. Um, so, so the the nerd the nerd doing the crossword puzzle part, you know, every day, you know, or would like to be every day. <laughs> um, that part is the part that's really fun. And the, uh, there's another aspect that's really fun too, which is just working with people, right? You know, collaborating with people, working with people in my group, beyond my group. Um, that part, I, you know, doing the research with other people, I really like. Um, so those two things, I think for me, I wouldn't want to be doing this just alone all the time, <laughs> um, but being able to do it alone some of the time is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been really lucky. <laughs> yeah, I've met a bunch of your team and they're always such a, a fun crowd. I'm going to ask the opposite question. Uh, what's the most challenging or the least enjoyable part of your job? Least enjoyable, I would say, are unnecessary meetings, you know, for everybody, right? Bureaucracy, bureaucracy in some form or, or another exists in everything. Um, so that's not fun, um, but you know, that's everybody does it, you know, has to do it no matter what you do. Most, that, so that's not fun, but it's not challenging either, right? You know, it's, you do it. Um, most challenging, uh, probably people, right? I mean, it's usually, you know, issues to do with interacting with people, making sure, you know, everybody is on board with the same, the same goals, not necessarily the same way of getting to that goal, obviously, but, um, and just actually learning to work as a team um, is something, I think learning to work as a team is something that we all sort of learn it individually kind of by trial and error, right? I mean, there's more of that now in a, a formal education setting, certainly than when I had my formal education. But learning to work in a team where you have to deliver things and you have to deliver them on time, um, but they also need to be creative. Um, so all of those kinds of things, you know, a lot of... Uh, sort of science operations for planetary missions involve trades, right? Like I want to take, you know, maybe I want to take an observation that means that the spacecraft has to be pointing some instruments out into the solar wind, but that means the camera will be pointing into the solar wind too, which isn't really a lot of good if you want to take images of the surface, right? So, so then there's a big trade of, you know, what I would ideally like to get scientifically in terms of data versus somebody else, right? And sort of figuring out, you know, in planetary missions, at least in the operational side of it, um, you know, that part is is usually an ongoing uh, discussion and, you know, refining priorities and uh, doing trades and making sure all the time that what you're going to do doesn't endanger a spacecraft right so um so those things can get you can imagine those conversations can get pretty heated <laughs> but uh figuring out sort of how to negotiate those is um is uh you know is definitely challenging and i think it's really it, it's very challenging if you're in a minority which you know women still are um and so figuring out how to have your voice 
heard um, is something that's actually very important. And, you know, for me, it's been an evolving thing. I think it's probably only been really very recently that I feel that um, that's something that I've mostly figured out how to do. And so I really try to help people who work with me or don't necessarily even work with me, right? But to be very supportive of um, of people whose voice, you know, might not be heard because they're in a minority. So, um, so those are the things that, you know, challenges usually are about people, but then when you sort it out, it's really rewarding. <laughs> yeah, your team um, here at UBC is, does have a lot of really uh, strong and confident women. Um, who are just amazing. And so I think you've, yeah, really done a, a great service to the next generations. I hope so. I mean, you know, I hope that, um, I definitely hope that one of the things that would, you know, that they would benefit from would be that some things that were more difficult for me won't be as difficult for them. There'll be other challenges, of course, right? But um, you just hope to kind of just roll the way forward gradually. And I'm curious, um, in general, do you feel that planetary sciences is really welcoming or is it a little more insular? Um... Well, it's a good question. So I, um, it's a mix. I think it's, I mean, overall, it's very welcoming. And I think, um, and it, because, you know, because of the excitement of what you're doing. Right. So you sort of start from a good place. Right. You know, you know, you've got to you, you're going out of the gate with a good starting point. <laughs> right. It's like we want to do something that's amazing and challenging and difficult. And we have to, and that is our common goal. I think that, you know, whether something is welcoming or not really depends on the details of individual teams. Right. So so I would say I've had both experiences. Uh, you know, over my career, but I've had more welcoming experiences than unwelcoming ones. Um, and, you know, is it insular? Some of the doing of science is very insular. Uh, you know, by definition, you know, a lot of research is very much about the individual. And so I think that a really important sort of part that all of us, certainly all of us in any kind of mentorship role, play is making sure that the part that is individual in that endeavor is is healthy from a mental aspect right so um you know i think i think scientific research can can be unhealthy without the community aspect of it and so so i try to make sure you know with my group we we have weekly meetings of course like you know, most people's group, those kinds of things. But but yeah, you try to really check in on the insula part um, because, you know, all of us have been there, I think, where we've been like, I don't know how to do this and I don't know if I'm ever going to figure this out, right? And what you really need is a bit of help, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, so I think the field as a whole is not insula. The nature of doing science can be. That's a great point. In the movies, the mad scientist always works alone. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of mental health, um, a big issue for mental health this year has been the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I'm curious, has that impacted your work or have you been able to work uh, through COVID-19? So, you know, most of us in academia are extraordinarily fortunate, right? You know, we've been able to A, keep our jobs and be paid and 
work in a way where we have been safe in terms of the pandemic, right? But has it had an impact? Yes, of course. I mean, it's had sort of a, I think, a multitude of impacts. There are obvious impacts, and they're the ones that are being surveyed very well at the moment, you know, in terms of what challenges people have faced in terms of, you know, their living situation. Are they caring for people who are sick? Are they caring for young family members, old family members, sick family members, etc.? Um you know, there's a lot of stuff that's much more difficult to measure, right? Uh, you know, which is about the dullness. <laughs> you know, we were talking before this, right? I, I said, you know, I think I've coined a new phrase, dulling out, you know? I'm dulled out by the pandemic. It's not that you're, you might be exhausted too, but more just dull, a little dull. And uh, the sameness of everything is, is, a, is, actually very challenging to a creative endeavor, right? So one of the things that all of the additional stresses, so for example, I was on sabbatical during the um, uh, pandemic. And so, you know, a lot of people said, oh, you're so lucky you're on sabbatical. You know, you don't have to deal with the teaching thing, which of course we did anyway, because it's gone on for much longer than anybody thought. But this kind of sort of, you know, stress, ubiquitous stress, right, is, is, um, very damaging to creative endeavors, right? Because your brain is constantly working on this what if, what if, what if situation. So I think it has an impact on creativity no matter what the additional practical challenges are. Um, I think it's had an impact on creativity because, you know, because now we're, we're able to like have meetings, of course, all the time, anytime. So you know, advantages are we don't have to commute, but my day now starts routinely at 6 a.m. with meetings, right? Because I'm coordinating with different time zones, uh, because it's academia, it doesn't finish at 3 p.m. if it started at 6 a.m., you know, just keeps on going. <laughs> and so, um, so I think, you know, the mental health aspects for people are really figuring out how to manage sort of this this work existence that has kind of just spread like jello into, you know, every nook and cranny of our normal, normal lives, right? So those things, you know, for, for me and thinking about my group, um, I've tried to make sure to meet, you know, more often even than before, right? Uh, to make sure people just to check in right with people, because, you know, especially in Vancouver, we live somewhere that's very expensive. Most people, many young people here have a living situation that was optimized for sleeping. It wasn't optimized for being there 24-7. You know, they live with other people or they live in a very, very small space. And, uh, and so just sort of checking in with people to try to, you know, make sure that things are as okay as they can be um, has been really important. The practical impact I think for a lot of people who are mentors is that opportunities for people in their group have been have either disappeared or been delayed because of COVID. So, you know, for me, for example, the practical impact has been three people in my group had opportunities elsewhere that have been delayed anywhere from kind of a few months to over a year. And so then from a funding perspective and a health of science going forward, right, you know, obviously the person who's currently the mentor will try to make sure to support 
people until they can move on. But you're using resources to do that where you would normally be naturally just cycling your group, right? People would be moving on, new people would be coming in. And so you've sort of used up resources, you know, that would normally be part of this evolution. So I think we have to be very cognizant, particularly, again, it comes down to things like, you know, questions of minorities in the field, right? You know, these things that look like little gaps, a year where something didn't change much. In academia, the timescales are so long that that year, two years, snowballs into five, and all of a sudden you are missing kind of an academic generation of, of people. Um, so there is some practical implications um, that I think that we will see. It's going to take time to see them. Right. So there's definitely there's definitely been an impact. I think most of us will be very happy to have some semblance of the old normal. (laughs) And then there's the invisible cost, too, of the people who um, would have been coming in, but aren't because you're still supporting the the people who haven't been able to move on. Right, right. And it's not, you know, that's obviously not, in some ways, it's great because, you know, you have people working, you know, with with whom you're working, who are really highly trained, you already have a working relationship with them. So obviously, there's good things there, but it's not the natural course of how we would normally sort of, you know, have a healthy cycle, right. And, um, and so, so that's something that, you know, I think will have kind of longer term implications. And, for those individuals, I mean, in my group, people have been lucky enough that the positions have been able to be delayed. But, you know, I know people for whom that's not the case. Right. Um, so. So, yeah. So this is, uh, you know, I think it's something that just, you know, it's going to require kind of constant vigilance for quite a few years to figure out what the impact still is from the, the past two years. And with the border being closed, I guess you're not popping down to um JPL anymore. Nope. Nope. All right. You know, so that's an amazing thing though. Uh, all insight operations, all Osiris Rex operations, uh, are all remote. Everything. Mars 2020, the landing of Mars 2020, with the exception of a core group of engineers for entry, descent, and landing, all of that was remote, right? So you know, it's like everybody says, right? We've really established a new paradigm for how people can work, even doing things like flying spacecraft. Um, but, you know, again, a lot of these things are, are much easier in person because it's much easier to sort out a lot of small issues that can otherwise become big issues, right? If you can just like go by, talk to somebody on the way to coffee, go by their office for five minutes, deal with it, right? And so, uh, so I think, again, you know, a lot of these things I think we can look to a future that will be hopefully a mix of the benefits of both worlds. Again, your research sounds just amazing. Um, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are thinking that they wouldn't mind going into planetary sciences. Uh, So I'm curious, what background or or courses or experience would you recommend for uh, students who are looking to follow in your footsteps? I would say if you want to be a planetary scientist, get a really good, get an undergraduate degree that is solidly in any of geology, geophysics, physics, astronomy. Um, You don't need to specialize in planetary science until later, right? You know, get the fundamentals and the fundamentals can be 
more or less math oriented, depending on, you know, what your, what your inclination is, um, you know, cause there's, you know, there's a full kind of range within, um, uh, within planetary science, but just make sure to get, you know, become a good geologist first or become, you know, a, a well-trained geophysicist or well-trained, you know, uh, physicist first, right. And then, in grad school, maybe, or even after grad school, right? I had somebody working in my group who came from, I mean, she had a PhD in theoretical physics and came to my group for many years. And so, and so it's really just the grounding in some fundamentals, right? And, uh, and then, you know, and then pick up the planetary science uh, a bit later. Um, what was your most um, important course when you were in school? Oh, gosh. Uh, so school, you mean college school, you mean the North American version of school or school at any point? <laughs> Let's see. In your, your education, I guess. In my education. I don't I don't think I have a most important course. I have, a, I have most important teachers. Right. Um, I'm probably my math teacher in high school. So he was an applied mathematician and he was the person who said, don't worry about you know, wanting to be a scientist, do it, right? And make sure, you know, here are some things, you know, here are some things to follow, here are some things to do. And he was a great math teacher, so I loved math, right? And so I really feel like out of all of the people from whom I've taken a formal course, um, probably he was the most influential, I would say, um, because I loved what I, you know, I loved the subject matter, but he also like showed me how it could be important, right? And um, and so I think that was it for me. It's always nice when um, yeah, when a teacher can make a difference like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had no idea at the time, right? I just thought, oh, this is this is cool, and he's a good teacher. And it wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until some point in grad school where we were doing some math for something, and I realized that I had actually learned this from this teacher in high school. And I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, you take the biscuit. <laughs> so yeah, he was he was really good. But then I had a I had good courses in undergrad and in and in grad school that were geophysics courses that I loved, right? I've actually never had a planetary science course. So <laughs> so I guess that goes back to what we were talking about before, right? <laughs> you know. Exactly. And now you teach them. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, looking at the long term, uh, what would you like to be your legacy uh, at the end of your career? So what would you like to be written on your career's tombstone when you retire? Well, it wouldn't fit on a tombstone, but I think there's 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 a couple of different things, right? You know, one is selfishly as a research scientist, I I do want to have contributed research that made a difference in our understanding, you know, absolutely. Do I want the selfish part of having contributed something that was substantive? Yes. It doesn't have to have been like one amazing thing, but just a body of work that is worth people reading to be able to move forward, right? You know, so you, you want to have contributed that, but more importantly, I think it goes to the mentoring slash making a way forward for other people. Right. I, I would like the fact that I've been able to do what I've done, not all of which was easy as a woman. I would like the fact that I and other people of my age group uh, who have 
been here and done that means that it is a bit easier for the next generation and the generation after that, right, to come and do that so that they can go even further. Um, I think that's that's something that's really important to me. And I, th I think for, for me, you know, during my own time in geophysics and planetary science, the thing that I think has changed is, you know, my mentors, my female mentors were, you know, some of the first people to be working as women in geophysics, right? And uh, at least in the modern post-plate tectonics geophysics era. And, you know, they did so very much in a white man's world. And I feel that because of them, I've, at least through the time of doing my career, you know, I sort of started out feeling that, you know, when I was in a professional setting, I needed to be never talking about anything except science, right? I couldn't talk about anything to do with me and and that who I was as a person was actually kind of irrelevant. What was important was just what I was contributing scientifically. And I think it's it's definitely changed during, you know, my time of being a planetary science that that it's much more welcoming now to just be who you are, right? I can say, no, actually, I want to go and do this thing with my girlfriends, right? Um, and to be able to talk about that um, is, I think, really important, a much more natural way of being, you know, to that is inclusive of sort of who you are outside of, you know, the piece of science that you're discovering. So I hope that by having done whatever I've done <laughs> in science that, that, you know, it will just move it. It's just one step at a time, but that you've been a, a small piece of that progress moving forward. You can be a person in, in addition to being a scientist. Yes. And I can be my person, not just a person, right? That me is, is, it's fine if I'm here. Now, I'm also curious, um, uh, fields are constantly changing, um, especially these days, it feels like every aspect of life is changing. Um, and the field that you enter at the beginning of your career can be completely different at the end of your career. Uh, so where do you see planetary science is going in the future? And um, do you have any recommendations for young people uh, who are entering this field so they can anticipate those changes? I think planetary science will go in a couple of different directions will be really important. One will be, I mean, human exploration of the solar system is coming, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I think that will be the, you know, planetary science that we will learn from humans being able to explore at least some other planetary bodies in our own solar system. Just more extensive exploration. I mean, there's still so much that we don't know, right? I mean, when you think about, you know, that what we talked about at the beginning, only in what, just over 10 years ago, we saw the other half of Mercury, right? So there's a huge amount that we don't know still in our own solar system. There are so many good mission proposals. You know, NASA currently is evaluating mission proposals for the next couple of discovery missions that will fly. And any of the proposals that are currently being considered are great ideas for, you know, discoveries. So I think, um, I think also in our own solar system, sort of privately funded, planetary science missions and research will, you know, become increasingly important. Um, it won't just be from government agencies and government players. And then, of course, just understanding uh, 
building on astronomical understanding of planets in other solar systems. So in terms of sort of scientific understanding, uh, that will be another really big area for the future, I think. But in terms of advice, no, do what you love. <laughs> I do have a few rapid fire questions for you uh, just at the end. Okay. So what's your favorite planet? Oh, no. <laughs> Mercury, Mars, and the moon. I'm going to also keep the moon. <laughs> I'm really partial to them all. I don't have a favorite. <laughs> it's like choosing a favorite child. The inner solar system. <laughs> What's your favorite NASA mission? Oh, for me, you know, Messenger is really like in my heart, right? Yeah, for sure. It's always the first one, right? No, the first one was Magellan to Venus. So that's, it's a hard decision. You know, you made me decide. Come on. <laughs> What's the most underrated space mission? The one that everyone should know about, but no one does. Underrated? Hmm. Magellan. In the public view, yes. The Magellan mission to Venus. I think so. Sure. I'll go with that. If you could go to another planet, would you? Personally? Yeah. I like, no, I like it here. I actually don't want to leave, but I have had students who want to be astronauts. So I'm, I'm putting my astronaut backing behind them. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, Catherine, thank you. That's been wonderful. Uh, those are all the questions I have for today. Is there anything you want to say before I let you go? No, thanks so much. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.